Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. We're in Hebrews 12. Uh, the context that we have is we just got done. We're in the practical part of Hebrews where um, the writer is talking to Jewish believers in Christ who have been tempted to not go to church but go back to synagogue because it's just easier and the culture lets them do it. And they don't have to have any conflict with anybody if they go hang out with the Christians. They just keep hanging out with the Jewish people. The entire book is written against that idea. And they set up the idea that there's now a new covenant, there's a new high priest, that we have Jesus, that Jesus is better than the shadow of everything from the, from the Mosaic system. The whole Mosaic system was to point at Jesus. Chapter 11 said we have a firm foundation. Like, we don't have to believe this stuff on flippant, you know, guesses or to let our reason go. We actually have a historical record of what we believe. And we have a firm foundation. We have the history of God's word. And God's word has always shown God to be faithful, which means when we talk about faith, we're talking as much or more about God's faithfulness than about our own ability to generate it somehow. It's not a feeling you get because you've psyched yourself out. We trust in God's faithfulness over and above our feelings. And then faith becomes a core to that relationship between God and us. We simply believe God tells the truth and he'll back up his word. That's all the faith we need to have, is that God tells the truth. And if we believe that, we can move forward. So when we get to chapter 12, we get to one of the more famous verses from Hebrews 12. It starts out in verse 1. Wherefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Awesome verses. Because we have faith in a God that we believe in, we can run. We don't have to slow down. We can do this. So the word at the very beginning, um, some of your Bibles might have therefore, but it's actually a different, we've seen a lot of therefores. It's a different Greek word. The word here is wherefore. And wherefore is in the Greek has to do with a consequence of something or in addition to something. So we just got done going through all the greats of the Old Testament. And it's not because they did what they did, we can do what we do. But in addition to what they did, we do what we do. In other words, the whole point of that history or that hall of champions is that we're next in line. And the history of the world, I mean, I wake up in the morning and take a shower and comb my hair and, Paul, I do all those things and it seems so normal and so mundane, but so did all those heroes back in the Old Testament. They woke up in the morning, they did their thing every day, and very small segments of their life are things where they're called out. So we get this wherefore. We are also part of that lineup is what the writer is trying to say with that shift of word. We're surrounded by, again in the Greek that's encompassed or all around us. We're 
<laughs> we, we're hanging around with witnesses everywhere we go, and we're bound by those people. So this is interesting, because every time I've read this verse, I've always thought of the surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. I've always thought of that of those Old Testament heroes from the last chapter. And if therefore was there, I might think that, but it's not. It's wherefore. We are in addition to those heroes, surrounded by witnesses all over. So then you look around the room, and you're like, oh, there's other people witnessing God's grace in their life. And I can see that right now. So both readings, I think, are perfectly okay. But the word cloud there in the Greek, <laughs> again, this is a great verse because you're going through almost every single word. The word there means a throng or a dense multitude. Hundreds of people, thousands of people, a, a, a throng, a great shapeless mass is what it means in the Greek. So we have this reason to run in faith because we're surrounded by a mass of people. Also notice that in verse 1 it uses we, not you. We run together. We're surrounded. We also are surrounded. Let us lay aside every weight. We run this race together. And I just think that's wonderful. I think the enemy loves to tempt us into thinking that it's all in our head what we do. And that the battle is only us all by ourselves versus sin. But it's not. We run the race together. It's why we do things together. I notice whenever I hang out with y'all, I don't struggle with sin a whole lot. I struggle with sin when I'm by myself. And that when I'm making decisions by myself is when I can be deceived by myself. But the walk of faith is a team effort. And we run it together. I just think that's wonderful. Some people read this like we're being watched by the saints. A secondary way to read this is you're actually being watched by each other. Like we're all together in this. And we hang out. This is why we give each other grace. Because we want it back. Right? We expect to be treated by each other in a way where we're all doing this together. We're witnesses, or the word in the Greek, I love this when you look up a Greek word and you actually know it. If you look up the word witnesses in verse 1, it actually says martyr. We're surrounded by a throng of martyrs. And this is an era when the persecution for the Christian church was just starting to get rolling. And they're thinking, well, these are all people that every single one of them, Stephen has already been stoned. Stephen's one of those martyrs, but he bore witness to the hope of Jesus Christ and he endured right to the end. Jesus Christ bore witness to his sovereignty and died on a cross and rose again. He did it all the way to the death. So I think this is tough because when we think about persecution, we also, I always wonder, would I endure under persecution or not? Could I handle it? And I think sometimes we got to make that decision before we ever face it, that we're surrounded by martyrs. We're all martyrs. We're all bearing witness to the things we do. So the past and present, all of these people come together in God's faithfulness, God's spirit, and God's plan. And we all obey what he has. So it's not that these people are witnessing to us, but we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses that witness for us. We can look at their faith and we can be like the people around us. And in that, we can grow together. Hebrews 10, 23, in the last chapter, or two chapters ago, it said, let us hold fast to the profession of faith without wavering because he is faithful that promised. We hold fast because Jesus held fast. He went to the end, we go to the end. So we can profess it because he is our faith. And therefore, that's all we have to say. We don't have to make claims about ourselves. We only need to make claims about Jesus. That's the entirety of chapter 11 is where that faith sits. And then it says we... If you want to do this, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and every sin. Notice that weight and sin are two different things. So we get what sins are. You can just read the Old Testament. You got the Ten Commandments. There's a whole list of them, right? Don't sin. Stay away from that. But then you have weights. 
And I think this is interesting because a lot of times when people come into the faith, but they really still want the world, they say, okay, I'm going to be a Christian. What can I get away with? What are the kinds of things I can do? And a large time, the counsel that we have for those folks is when it says lay aside every weight, it's not talking about sins. It's talking about the stuff that slows you down in your race for Christ. And so a, a, a weight there is a mass that bulges from your load or a protuberance. A spiritual weight, because we're talking about spiritual issues here, is anything that gets in your way of getting through the eye of the needle. It's the, those protuberances in your life that just take up way more time than they should. I'll confess for me it's computer games. I got to fast on those once in a while. I got to take a break once in a while because they can get in the way of my time that I need for other things. And I'm thinking every one of us have those things. You know what they are because the Holy Spirit's probably pointing them out to you right now. But those are the things that we ought to get rid of, not because that they're a sin, but because they're a waste of our time. And they eat our life. And they, they weigh us down when we're trying to do something else. Now here's the other thing. A Christianity that makes no demands of you isn't a Christianity where you have to run a race, so it doesn't matter if you have weights burdening you down. You're already in a seat. But when you're running or you're moving, you want to shed everything. If, if you're running for your life, you literally you dump everything off of you to get rid of every weight to make it as easy as possible. And when we run through our lives, we can do the same thing. We lay aside every weight. So good people, I think good-hearted people often add weights, and I'm going to give you another angle on this. Sometimes when we come into the faith, we start thinking we got to do this, we got to do that, we have to do this, we have to do that. The opposite temptation is I don't have to do anything because I'm a Christian now. But I think it's easy to think of that as laziness. And Okay, we can't be lazy. We need to do some things for our faith, not to get saved, but because we love the Lord. But the other side of that is when you add the ought to's into your life, you ought to do this, you have to do this, you got to do this, you're just adding new weights on top of the old ones. Right? And they're not sins. Like These are things that could be really good. You, know, you ought to come with the guys to go gun shooting. You know, that's a good thing to do, to fellowship and hang out with people, but maybe you've got other callings for the day. And you've got to just think, what ought, what ought do I be doing or what should I be doing for the king right now? And so you think through every decision you make. Jesus said, come to me, all, you are heavy and lab all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. The life of Christ shouldn't be living by the ought tos. It should be living a life of Christ that's actually not adding more things to your walk, but just walking with the Lord and letting yourself get a break sometimes. Weights of a religious sort, those things we do for God, then become legalism and they're the things of the Pharisees. They're the worst kind of weights. And Jesus had words for the people that would do that too. Matthew 23, 4, For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move, one of the, move them with one of their fingers. That's what the Pharisees were doing to people is you ought to do this, you got to do this, you have to do this. And that kind of weight on people, that's not holy. It's not good. It just burdens people down. So we have both sides. You've got Christians that get to be legalists telling other people what to do, and you've got Christians that are lazy that tell people to, not to do anything. So we have this narrow path somewhere in the middle where we encourage, we edify, we live with grace, we pursue things with our whole heart because we want to and we love to. These aren't right or wrong choices, but they can be hindrances or not hindrances. And if we're running the race like we want to win it, you get rid of the hindrances and you don't do them unless they're things that help you in your race. Sin actually ensnares us. So instead of just getting slowed down, sin will stop you cold in your tracks. To get ensnared or to get trapped, 
your foot doesn't move anymore. So what happens if you have any kind of motion going at all is you fall flat on your face. That's what sin does. You're moving along and you're cruising and your ministry's growing and then bam, it hits you like a brick on your foot and you can't move it and everything ends and the race comes to a stop. doesn't mean anything other than that you need to wait for Jesus to pick you back up. Shed the sin, get rid of it, and keep moving. And maybe you're not running as fast because you might have a sprained ankle, but you move. You keep moving towards your faith. We lose the weights, we disentangle from the sin, and then we become lean, mean, running machines in a spiritual sense. Let us run. Notice this still is in the plural. We consider one another, chapter 10, 24. We don't forsake one another in the assembling of ourselves, chapter 10, verse 25. We, this is all in the context of the church. This is why the Hebrews can't keep going back to synagogue. If you're not hanging with the believers, you're not running the right way. So then you say, let us run with endurance. Most races in the Greek Olympics were races of speed. They were sprints. But the Greeks added the, 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 the marathon, the long run, which was the endurance run. And if you're a good marathoner, you want to keep a pace for sure, but it's not about raw speed. It's about going, continuing to go when your body says not to. And the reason they ran these marathons is because Greeks used messengers. They didn't have a pony express. They had a little Greek soldier express. And they would give the Greek a message and say, run, and they'd have to run to the next town. So the towns were generally spread out about X far, and that's how far they designed marathons to be. They wanted to train young people to be runners. If we have a message that we're carrying and we have to run for a certain distance that we don't get to pick, the goal is to carry that message as fast and with as much endurance as we can carry it. And we, we don't let it go. If someone tries to stop us or detract us or take us off the track, we say, we got a message. We got a calling. We're going here because God told us to go here. That's the only thing that gets in our way. The race, the agona, um, is a struggle or a conflict. And the, again, the Greeks used this word around their Olympics. The point of the conflict was to create better warriors and better runners and healthier young people that could actually perform in the areas of life they needed to. So the race there isn't just to win, it's to, it's to practice. It's the fitness of it. So even if you don't get first place in the race, the idea is to finish the race. You're still a good runner. When a runner runs a race, they do so in hope of a reward. Anything we endure in life, we endure it because we hope for something better. This is why I take showers. I hope my wife won't mind my smell. Right? Anything we do that we don't want to do, we do it because we hope for something better. So running a race, for anybody of my weight and size, is a miserable experience physically, but we do it because we hope for the prize at the end of it. Paul also writes, you guys know the Paul passages, he writes about this in Acts chapter 20 um, and five other times throughout the epistles. Like Paul loves this metaphor, which is one of the reasons people think Paul might have wrote Hebrews. Um, but Acts chapter 20 is a great one. And that's just the first verse of our chapter for today. So are you ready for verse 2? Like we're just going and it's like, okay, verse 2, looking unto Jesus. Actually, let me read verse 1 just as a whole so I'm not breaking it up too much. Wherefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the, the race that's set before us. I like the fact that we don't pick our own race. God picks it for us, sets it before us. Verse 2, same sentence. 
looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for who, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus has already gotten to the award platform. So when we run our race together, we're looking to Jesus who's already sitting at the ending. We're supposed to run with the, the race that's set before us. Jesus ran for the joy that was set before him. See the parallel language there? We're supposed to be looking to Jesus. The word looking there is not just to see something. It's to fixate something with your eyes or mind. To be unwaveringly focused on something. Like, I think this is one of the joys of having a dog. Like, when our dog is focused on something, he can't let it go. He can't, one of the hardest things for a dog is to keep their attention on something other than what they want to keep their attention on. They don't have that kind of will. But for humans, we do. We don't focus on the weights, the sins. We don't even focus on the throng of witnesses. And we don't focus on the race itself. We focus on Jesus before us at the other end. He's the author, the architect or designer. He's the guy who came up with this whole thing called faith. He's the finisher, teleotes, the perfecter or the completer of it himself to say, hey, this race is a winnable race. You can get to the other end. And then the word of our faith. What's interesting there though it's been we and our throughout the whole passage, if you look that part up in the Greek, you can just cross the word our out in your Bible. The author and finisher of faith, which gives it a whole different meaning, doesn't it? But the word our is just not there. It should be in italics. The author and finisher of faith. He invented faith, and he completed and perfected what faith should look like, and he showed it to us. This is what faith looks like. So it's not our faith. Jesus made it. He completed it. It's his and we trust in him. Let us draw near with a true heart in the full assurance of faith. We can be assured that God is faithful. You just draw near, and then we have assurance of it. And we have assurance because of chapter 11. He's shown us again and again and again and again that he keeps his word every single time. Jesus perfected our faith with a public witness of resurrection, God's power and invitation. Compare that to religions where it's some guy in his shed in the backyard that has a revelation. Jesus' manifestation of the truth of his witness was done before everyone. The debate wasn't, did Jesus rise from the dead again? The debate was, what do we do with the fact that he rose from the dead again? How do we cover this up is the thing that the early Pharisees had to deal with. The Romans had to try to bury it. But the idea that it wasn't a public thing is something you have to imagine here in the 20th century, 21st century. So God's faithfulness, we believe in it, because ours is weak. We have a shakable faith, but God's is unshakable, and it can't be moved. So it's that thing that I'm going to put it in there, of faith itself being completed. And he that's begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. That's a promise. If you have at one point wanted to go after God and serve him, sins might stop you in that journey. Weights might haul you down. But because God planted that in your heart in the first place, he's not going to not complete it. And there might be trials along the way and setbacks along the way and backslides along the way. But if you trust that the Lord God Almighty keeps his promise, then trust that promise. Philippians 1.6. If he's begun something in you, he intends to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's not going anywhere. Be assured of that promise. Know it. God only asks us to remember his past works. He never asks us to do anything other than that. He's, we're supposed to recognize the good work that's going on in our own heart that we do love the Lord, despite the fact that we get distracted and weighed down. 
the, all of faith for all time was either towards Jesus, the Old Testament, or because of Jesus, the New Testament. He's the Alpha and he's the Omega. Believe in that and you're well on your way. And I think sometimes Christians beat themselves up because they put too many ought to's on after that. That is the beginning. All who call upon my name and believe in my name shall be saved. Do you call upon Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Then you'll be saved. Did it for the joy that was set before him. Just imagine that. We're the joy that Jesus had set before him when he was running his race. We're it. We're the better thing. To spend eternity with us, we humans, is exactly what God sought and, and suffered for. So if we can be with him for all eternity, because we're his children, Jesus knows that and he's waiting for us. So we run to win. We want to be there. Whatever tragedy came with Jesus' experience, whatever tragedy we have in life, it's all worth it because those trials lead towards something way better at the other end. That's hope. This is, what, this is the definition of hope. We run because we hope for something better than this. Now, if you're in love with this world and you think that those chocolate donuts up there are all there is in life, you don't have a lot of hope because the donuts are waiting for you upstairs. It's all done. You don't need to have hope. But if you're not living for the chocolate donuts, there's something way better at the other end. There's something golden at the other end. And God gives us these little tastes of those things as we go through our lives. Worship, prayer, study, fellowship, food. He endured the cross, and then it says despising the shame. There's nothing good about the cross. He hated it. He despised it. And it says shame there because of how repulsive and horrible the cross was. This chapter just alludes to it, so I'll just allude to it too. But the cross wasn't a pretty scene. And the God of the universe humbled himself and endured that because of the glory, not because of the shame. He despised the shame, but he's going for the glory. I know I look at my own sin and I'm I'm, it's despicable. I hate who I was when I was a younger man. I hate who I was two years ago. And I want to keep growing towards God because I love who I am in Christ. I love what God's doing in my life. I love the hope, the faith, the peace, the joy. All those things keep growing. And as you get closer and closer, you realize, I want to get rid of as many weights as I can. I want to get rid of every sin that I can. It's not like a new believer saying, how much can I get away with? A veteran believer is, how much can I get rid of? I just want to shake it all off so when I'm at the end of my life and my body doesn't run at all, my spirit's running full speed and giving out lifesavers. <laughs> Daniel 12.2, Many of those who are asleep, who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting com contempt. It's interesting the Bible uses the word shame for the experience of hell. That is hell. It's as close to hell as we're ever going to get is the shame that we feel in sin. And there's this idea in Daniel that everlasting contempt is going to be this regret that you wasted your life forever. Imagine that. Versus squeaking into heaven <laughs> and being like the street, sweet, the, sweet, the street sweeper in heaven. Like, what a great thing. You're like, I made it. I'm, I'm sweeping the streets for the rest of my life. I should have picked a different example. The shame or the, the, the humanity's shame that he had to put on to come here is scathing. Uh, Charles Spurgeon uses the word cowardly when it comes to shame. There's a cowardliness to shame. That when you, when you feel shame, it's because you're not willing to take up other things. Here's what he says about, 
our boldness with Jesus Christ and the idea that Jesus has to endure every time we're embarrassed by him. Every time we don't bring him up when we have a golden situation, that's something Jesus has to endure too. That these humans who he loved and died for don't return it all the time. So I'll read you some Spurgeon. What a shameful thing it is that while you are bold about everything else, you're cowardly about Jesus Christ, brave for the world and cowardly towards Christ. You see this anytime you go into a tavern and eavesdrop at the next table. People are super bold about things that don't matter, like charcoal versus gas grills. People are so bold about which one they like better. It's sports teams. Oh, my sports team's better. And they're just bold about it. You don't even know. Your team's horrible. My team's great. Musicians with the favorite band. Best song. Oh, that's... And we, wine. Like, we got wine snobs in our world. You know that we're getting near the end of time when people debate about the quality of coffee. Right? And they're so bold about it. They're so proud of all the things they know about things. Vinyl versus digital. Star Wars versus Disney Star Wars. Why are we so bold about things that are empty, but we get so ashamed and cowardly about the name of Jesus Christ? I serve a mighty God. Your God sucks. Right? That's boldness. That's what Elijah did with an altar, one against 400. Or was that Elijah? I always mix the two up. Elijah. Elijah. Thanks, Paul. Knowing that Jesus would endure the cross and have to put up with people that are more bold about vinyl over digital than they are about Jesus over the world, that was a shame. And he endured it because of the joy set before him. What a beautiful thought. Silently, purposefully, gracefully, truthfully, and with an invitation, even to the end, he invited the other robber on the cross next to him. Just come be with me. Give it all up and come be with me. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When we sit, it means the work is done. It's finished. It's the last thing that came out of his mouth. The right hand of God is the power-wielding part of a king. So they would use this phrase, the right hand. And what that meant is this is the part that goes out and does things for the king. You know, on a chessboard, the king can only move like one space. But at their right hand are pieces that move a lot faster and a lot further. The right hand is the power of the active part of the kingdom. In the end, we're to be called children of God by faith in Jesus, Galatians 3.26. Children of God. As Jesus is glorified, like he promises, if the children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we might be glorified together. Anything we endure in this life, God's prepping us for heaven. He's training us. And this is how Christians look at the world a little different. This is a huge psychological shift, if you think about it, that whenever something bad happens, I think, oh God, how are you teaching me? What are you trying to get me to learn here? And sometimes bad things come from the enemy. Sometimes they come from our own screw-ups. And sometimes God's saying, I want to see how far I can push this one. Let's exercise. And that's called discipline. It's the same root word as disciple. So when God disciples us, we run with joy too. We run with endurance. How do we do this? It says to consider him, verse 3. <laughs> okay, that's two verses. I will move faster. We will finish the chapter today. But the first two verses were set up, just like last chapter. Verse 3, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. 
You haven't yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. You haven't got to the point where you're bleeding. Have you? Have you, have you been on a cross yet? Have you endured a scourging? Then you're nowhere near what Jesus endured for you. And that is an odd thought. I mean, this is a different world. But that should give us some endurance. The word there is to consider, to think about it. Use your mind. If Jesus endured that for what he's waiting for, and we're heirs to that same thing, then we should endure even worse to get to that same thing. If we're heirs with Christ, then we consider that and we think about it. That helps us to endure anything. Any kind of hostility we might experience, anything that somebody might say if we tell them about Jesus. In light of Jesus, we don't get weary or discouraged because he didn't. Um, this idea of bloodshed, there's two ways to read that. Some people read that as a reference to the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed to have the cup taken for him to the point where he bled through his pores. A medical state that you get to with high stress and anxiety. You can bleed through your pores. Other people read that, that resisting to bloodshed is, is the blood that he shed on the cross. Either way, same idea is that Jesus was willing to go through it for us and he was right to do so because the reward that was set before him. Anything we endure for Jesus, we're right to do so because of the Jesus that's waiting for us at the end of the race. It's the same kind of idea. Verse 5, And you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. Again, notice that idea of inheritance. You're sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For when the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he receives. Okay, now we're shifting into this image, which we're going to be in a few verses. That this is like our relationship with our fathers. This is why Satan loves to mess up fathers and the relationship with the father. Loves to. Eats, he eats that for breakfast. Because even though human instinct is to avoid pain and avoid trials and avoid hardships, we lose something if we don't ever know how to endure and put up with something. So we do take pain and trials when we understand the benefit of it. And this idea of a father-son relationship is an interesting kind of paradigm. Now, if you had an earthly father that wasn't perfect, which is all of us, that image can be tainted. But the reason we know that our dads screw up is because we know what a good dad looks like. God wrote it on our hearts. And so there is a thing when you grow up and you become older and you realize your parents aren't perfect and they've got flaws and they're screwed up, and you go, dang, what a letdown. But don't let that deceive you that it's the fact that you're aware of that somehow or another that God has letting you know there is a perfect father. There is an image that we can follow. And this chastening is the same thing that when you have. Now, being a dad myself, I have chastened my kids. But I never chasten my kids because I don't love them. I chasten them because I see them doing something that will hurt them in the long run. I see them carrying a weight that they don't need to carry. I see them getting entangled with sin. I'm not going to let my kid continue to be entangled with sin without severe chastisement and even punishment. Like, I want them to get caught. What kind of father would let their son continue to sin knowingly? It would be a father that has no love or care for their kids whatsoever. But instead they would say, knock it off. And then they'd say, knock it off. And then they'd say, darn it, if you don't knock it off, there's going to be consequences. And then the consequences would come. And the consequences could continue to escalate as long as the Father loves the Son and hasn't given up on Him. And the Father in Heaven is the same way. It's the number one reason the Jewish Christians were discouraged is that they forgot who their dad was. They forgot who their father was. 
God's people often endure trials. And not all trials are from the enemy. Some of them are from our God. And I can't, don't even begin to ask me which one's which because I don't know, you got to pray about it. God actually wants us to reason and consider, verse 3, wants us to think. Important reason for difficult times, one of them is so that we can help to comfort other people going through similar experiences. What a blessing to be able to call somebody up and say, I've been there. I've walked this journey you're about to walk, and it's a rough one. But let me tell you how to get through it. And the first step is we're going to give glory to our God. Don't run away from the Lord. Stick close to him. He's your path. Sometimes we go through trials simply because we got to get things out of our life. We got weights that we don't see and we're not able to get rid of, and God's got to get rid of them for us. Shake it. Shake it. Now I got bigger plans for you. God's chastening should never be thought of as rejection from our Father, but the actual image of love from our Father to correct us and guide us, even to the point of a spiritual spanking. Verse 7. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as one of his sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate, you're not sons. Oh, man. Veteran believers, you know, I think, okay, we have veteran believers in the room. There is a thing when you get saved that you can't get away with things anymore. Like you think you can for a while, but eventually like God will manipulate the universe to get you caught on the littlest things. I even joke with my kids because I'll do something. I'll be like, don't tell mom. And they'll be like, okay, okay. And then we'll walk upstairs and be, mom, I just did this. I got to tell you. And the kids are just like, dad. Like we, this, And it was like, I can't keep secrets because I'm going to get caught anyways because God gives her magical powers to know whenever I've done something wrong. Honestly, I... I, I bought like a $10 thing online, and then I'm like, well, I don't really want to get into it with stuff. So I went and deleted the receipt from the email box. I go upstairs. Her device wasn't connected to the internet, so she pulled up her email, and it was sitting right there. And she goes, Sean, what'd you just buy? And I'm like, I thought I got away with that. (laughs) Something about being a Christian, God doesn't let us get away with things. Or if he does, he doesn't let it happen for long. And that's because he loves us. See that as a sign of love. At least we go to do the worldly stuff and our conscience then burns us. That's good too. You shouldn't feel good doing things that offend your father. You shouldn't do things that actually make it so you can't come into the presence of God. You shouldn't do things that make you feel guilty when you come to God's people and hang out with them. So shake that stuff off. The reason for struggles with the world is because we set things apart. and we say, This is symbiotic. It works together. The more you consecrate in your life, the more you will get into it with the non-believers in your life, period. Say yes to Sundays and no to your employer, you get into it with your employer. And I, almost every Christian I know gets into this. Well, that's, that's Sunday, that's my day. Well, we just need this one thing this one time. Really? Because it's just going to keep coming. And to say, that's consecrated for me, I can't give it to you. I can give you six days a week, 14-hour days, overtime plus. Can't give you that day. And I'm not saying that, like, we're at different places in our life, and I know some people do work on Sundays, but here's the thing. Everything you consecrate for God, the world's going to be jealous of. Everything you consecrate for the world, God's going to be jealous of. And he knows which one you pick. When you say no to sin and say yes to God, you're going to get canceled by the people that say yes to sin and no to God. It's going to happen. Bring it. Like, that's the thing. Our, the joy of the Lord is our strength. 
I'm just happy to be with the Lord. I'm going to consecrate this for the Lord. I'm going to give the Lord this. I'm going to give the Lord that. That's my power in the battle, is everything I give up for the Lord. So it's totally normal for a father to guide their son. I'll get back on track. Verse 9. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. This is a different era in history. Like, we live in a country right now, parents aren't even getting the respect, right? So that's, we're like, okay, we got to adjust a little bit. Shall we not much more be readily and be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he is for a prophet that we can be partakers of his holiness. Now, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. When you're in the middle of getting spanked, it's not happy, right? It's never fun to be chastened, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. When I know where the boundaries are, I can be happy. When I know where the line is, I can hang out. One of my favorite studies ever was around school playgrounds and fencing. So they'd have these big school playgrounds and the kids would all cluster together and then they'd put in a fence for whatever reason and they found the kids would distribute and go right up to the edges of the fence. But when there's no fence, you can only, the only thing you can do is cluster. And when there is a fence, it creates a space. So instead of limiting the room for people, the boundaries actually made it so that they could be at peace. They knew where they could go. They knew where it was okay. We're the same way. Verse 9, to live here, the point is that it's all for a better life. Not a better future, but a better life right now. That's a slightly shifted argument in this chapter. At first, it's for the joy set before Jesus, but we run a race for a better life right now. Like a clearer mind. And then verse 10, for his holiness, right? There's this idea of we want to be partakers of holiness. When God disciplines us, we learn what his holiness is and not what we've defined as holiness. Because we can define our own holiness really easily. It's one of the great temptations. It's Adam and Eve. Well, you can know what good and evil are. You can make that decision. Why would you submit to God's call on what that is? But we learn what God's definition is when we, he disciplines us. And verse 11, no chastening seems to be joyful. These experiences are never fun. Evil always starts with worry or hope in other things or a hope for safety or a hope for amiability. And when those things are shattered by God, we learn that that's not where we put our trust and our hope. And it's never fun. It's never fun to lose a job. It's never fun to uh, be concerned about what will happen next. It's never fun to feel like you're not safe. But where do we put our hope and where do we put our trust? What seems like a bad experience can actually be really good for our soul. Peaceable fruit of righteousness. The world shares this lie that Christianity isn't fun. And I'm afraid we have a lot of churches that aren't fun. They aren't joyful. There isn't a peaceable fruit of righteousness when you walk in the door and walk out. And I don't need to pick on churches, but if we as Christians forget what it's like to just enjoy life, what witness do we have? Why would people choose Christianity over what they're doing? But that peaceable fruit of righteousness, wow, I just want to be, and this idea of like those who have been trained by it. I actually want the holiness and a better life today. I don't want it tomorrow. And I don't want to wait for it. I want to, have, I want to be able to walk without shame right now. I want to be able to walk with purity and holiness to the, whatever degree God can help me to figure that out. Boy, I want as much of it as I can till the day I die. It frees us. It frees us from obligation. 
It frees us from this idea that we owe somebody something. It frees us from shame and past sins. Walk away. You're created new every day. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. We're trained by it. You want to grow or don't you? I think that's what this comes down to. Either you draw near, hold fast, and consider others, chapter 10, or you get burdened and wearied, chapter 12, or, or, or ensnared. The training continues in fellowship with other people. Anything else is vanity, an empty ripoff of minutes and hours and days and a lifetime. It just eats life. I love the fact that we had a brother that said, you know what's cool is I have a family now. I got a family. I used to do all these things on my own, but now I got a family to hang on with. That's exactly what this is talking about, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. I can just hang with my family. Yep, you can. God's given you a gift. So a lot of times we get worried, anxious about other things, and then God just gives us life experiences where we realize that there's more fruit with God than there is with those other things. That's the summary of this. So understand that chastening is part of that process. If we don't get to know God, in the end we're going to get to heaven and not know who's there to meet. If, we don't, if, we do, if God removes the idols from our lives and what's left is Christ Jesus, we actually know who we're running into the arms of when we get to heaven. What a great experience. Are we allowing the Lord to do that work in our life? Are we even in a race? Are we even fighting that battle to grow spiritually? I'd rather take a sinner fighting the battle than a self-righteous person that never thinks they have anything to learn. Who's way, you know, apparently they're way ahead of me in my life, you know, so I can't walk with them anymore. Verse 12, therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down. This idea of just being exhausted, right? When you run and you got endurance, your hands are up. They help push you forward. When you're exhausted, you're just kind of dragging your feet. Feeble knees. Verse 13, you make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. I just love this image between, they're switching between this image of the race and totally mixing it with our faith journey. Because we all know what running feels like. Right? So we all understand this. Therefore, now we get the word therefore. It's dio in the Greek. It's not the same as verse 1. This is a causal statement. We have hope in Jesus Christ, therefore. So after giving a reason for hope, even in the face of resistance, we get these practical applications. The rest of this chapter is how to live life. So I thought about breaking it off, and I'm like, no, 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 we can do this. Two more pages. The first thing they have here is to wake up. <laughs> I just love this. This is just great advice. Wake up. You ever run into a 13-year-old that's just kind of like a zombie? Yep. And they just kind of blah through life? And they're just existing? The first thing to do is wake up. Get out of that mode and snap too. You can't just let life happen. Strengthen your hands. Feeble the knees. Make straight your path for your feet so that what's lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. You don't heal yourself by sitting still and doing nothing. You heal yourself by doing the thing God's called you to do. Don't sit still. Don't wait around for God to fix you. Start moving. I'm broken. I'm messed up. Then start serving other people. Start doing humble, simple things to help other people in the body of Christ. Be a blessing. And that's the path towards healing. After giving a reason for that hope, then we keep moving forward. First one's a wake up. Realize that after the world 
uh, leaves us weak. <laughs> I think that's funny that we have to strengthen our hands because everything that's empty leaves you wore out and, and dead inside at the end of the day. Everything. Even the things the world says are awesome. At the end of the day, they just take your money and your time. And then you get done and realize it didn't feed or fix anything. If you're a slave to those things you seek after, then raised hands then become an image of something very different. In fact, I, one commentator said that strengthening your hands is like an image of praise. It's why some people praise with their hands in the air. Because they're going to raise them up. And they get them from that idea of raise your hands, strengthen your hands. Put them in the air and give them up. What, one commentator talked about like when you worship and raise your hands, it's like surrendering. Right? When the cops say, put them up, they want you to surrender. And the way you surrender is you put your hands up. And to worship with that attitude of just, I give up, Lord. It's all yours. It's just the same thing we do for a human cop. Why wouldn't we do it for an almighty God? I get, it's all yours, God. So people think about it that way. Strengthen your hands. Romans 6, 18. And having been freed from sin, you become slaves to righteousness. There's a biblical concept here that everybody's a slave to something. When you wake up in the morning, you have a heart to do something. And this idea is something we grow into, but that idea of going after yourself, you end up at the, as an old person as selfish. That's how that works. If you go after other people, you end up being a doormat. If you go after money, you end up being greedy. If you go after lust, you end up being lustful. If you want power, you're going to end up being maybe powerful, but you'll be full of arrogance and pride. Whatever you go after, you become. If you go after worldly peace, you're going to be compromised because you're trying to be at peace with everybody. It doesn't work. Everything you pursue ends up making you who you are at the end of the day. You become what you pursue. And everybody worships something. So we become slaves of righteousness. I like it so much that I pursue peace because that's what I want to become. So I try to make it. So... Think about it this way. It's like a spiritual taking care of ourselves. If you take care of your flesh, how much more should you take care of your spirit? So do you go to the dentist when you get a cavity? Is it fun to get your teeth drilled? Endure the chastening of God. Do you go to a doctor? Do you go to a spa? Do you go to sleep every night or try to? Well, you're taking care of your flesh. Do you eat food every day? I don't have time for God. Do you have time to eat? Because if you have time to eat food, maybe you have time to take care of your spiritual life too. Or you're just getting spiritual cavities all over the place because you're not taking care of yourself. Are we as faithful to our spiritual lives as we are after our God's lives? Pick up your hands. Straighten your path. There's practical advice here. We go after God, and at the end of our days, we become godly. That's the same formula. Whatever you pursue, you become. God, we only care for the things God wants to, and that is a promise of peace, verse 11. Then we go after it. Verse 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we get two pieces of practical advice. Pursue peace and pursue holiness. Go after those two things. Is there anyone in your life right now that has a claim against you as a bad person? And are you letting that go? If we pursue peace, then we make peace with people. Sometimes that means paying people money that's owed to them. Sometimes it means getting, getting the raw end of a deal because we're being stubborn about something. But is there anyone out there who isn't at peace with you? The Jewish people called this shalom. You'd be at shalom with all people. And you'd meet people and you'd say, do we have shalom? Yes, we do. And you'd leave people, do we still have shalom? Yes, we do. 
but it's this idea that God wants us to be at peace. Verse 15, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and why and by this many become defiled. Do you got people in your life that you're bitter towards? What do we do about that? Verse 16, there, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, or for one morsel of food sold as birthright. For you know that afterwards when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. This, is the, this kind of passage is why I read the Bible. I just This is so inspired. Not only is it beautiful literary genius that we're reading in verses 14 through 17, but there's a truth to it. Remember, this is about discouragement and people just getting tired of getting slack about going to the synagogue, the church. They wanted to go back to their old ways. So in the face of all that, their family rejection, people shaming the name of Jesus, persecution that was starting to build, pursue peace with all, all people. We don't do anything that fuels the battle of the flesh with others. Like, at the end of the day, we should be the people of peace. We just don't pick the fights. They want to take a cheek, they can have the other, Jesus taught. We don't do the sparring, we don't do the fighting in that kind of way. We do it the other way. We pour kindness on people and it's like coals on the top of their head, right? And we just, we're not here to seek a spat with those Jewish people or any other religious group. We don't want to fight with them, but we want to recognize where life is and pursue it. And holiness, we go after holiness. One of the simplest things I can think of is in the Christian walk, we pursue holiness and we go after it. That doesn't mean that we ever are holy because God alone is holy. It doesn't mean that we ever reach or attain it on our own works or by our own merit because God determines the merit and he's the one that determines if the works have any value or not. But what I don't want to be is like Esau, verse 16 and 17. I don't want to get to the end of my days and then go, oh shoot, I really wanted that blessing. And then go back and say, can I please, 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 please have that blessing? And he, and, but he still had no place for repentance. He, he still couldn't turn from sin. And therefore, it, he didn't get the blessing. So even though he would want it, he wants it in the flesh. He doesn't, hasn't done what needed to happen in the spirit. So Esau never turned from his ways. And in that, there was a major problem. And he's a witness to us in the negative. This is how not to do it. He sold his birthright being compared to fornicating, <laughs> right? If you have things in your life that are overtly against God's law and you don't stop doing them, why would you think you'd ever get the blessing? Well, because God's full of grace and mercy. Huh? God's put conditions on the grace and mercy. It has something to do with you having a heart that wants to turn from sin. It doesn't say you have to get rid of all the sin, but you should want to get rid of all the sin. That's a difference. Everyone's running a race and we're all trying to attain a goal, we seek after Jesus, which means peace, rest, and contentment come for it. Other people run a race and they're looking for work promotions, security, safety, friends. Some people run a race where they're just looking after alcohol or drugs. Legacy. Even some people pursue a race which is called ministry. And all of those things are just in the flesh. And if you do any of those things, but you're not pursuing peace and holiness, you're doing them in vain. They don't count. Peace with others without holiness is called compromise. Holiness without peace is called legalism or offensiveness. Let me say that again. Peace with, with others without holiness is simply compromise. You're just giving people what they want. 
Holiness without peace is simply legalism. I'm super holy, but I don't have peace with you. Or you're just being rude and offensive. So to call folks to holiness with peace or peace with holiness is a supernatural call that we have before our Almighty God. It's not something we do naturally. We're declared holy by God so that we pursue those things and we look for our Father to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You did what you were asked to do. No more, no less. Our ministry, our, our witness to others is absolutely affected by this and that's where it connects it right there where it says, without which no one will see the Lord. People can't see Christ in us if we're not doing the things for our own heart that we need to be doing. We'll destroy our own witness. Satan loves contentious, unruly Christians. Loves them. They give a great, horrible name to Christianity from Satan's perspective. Satan loves to see people come into the church and walk around and create a witness that when newbies come in, they just say, look at these Christians, they're all hypocrites. Look at, these people aren't actually nice to each other. Like these people judge all the time and they're just rude and mean. Or look at this church when you walk into it and you just see people come in and leave and nobody talks to each other. That's not shalom. You're seeing something where the, in that kind of a church, I think Satan just loves it because nobody is doing anything like they're commanded to do in the Bible. They're just pretending to do church. Sadly, we see a lot of that today. So the Holy Spirit works on folks saying the exact opposite. Hey, look over there. Those are peaceful people. Those are holy people. Despite what you've seen in the Christian world, look at that small group of people over there living life in holiness and peace with one another. It's real because it can happen. It happens all over the place, all over the world, and the Holy Spirit drives His children towards those groups. For our end, we tend to ourselves. <laughs> From God's end, He uses us as a tool to bring other people into the kingdom. They say, at least those people like each other. At least they hang out. A little too much hugging for my taste when I first got to be a believer, but I eventually let that go. And I, I Okay, I can hug too. Lest anyone, there's a community of believers that look out for each other. So this is practical action. Strengthen, pursue peace, pursue holiness, and look carefully. There's also non-actions, falling short, bitterness, defiled, fornication and being profane. You see this kind of contrast as to how to live and how to do this. The profane, I think this is great. In the Latin, that's profanum, which is to be outside the fane or the courtyard area of the temple. Profane people hang out too much outside the temple. That's what the word profane means. They're secular. They don't stay in the courtyard. They're out there all the time. Some seek holiness. Some don't. They're profane. To seek holiness is God's really only expectation of us. Change your heart. Esau sold his birthright. That's a reference to Genesis 25, if you want a side note. Um, what he did there, and you can go back and listen to Genesis 25 if you want to, he just treated it as worthless. This great inheritance wasn't something he could eat. It wasn't something he could touch. It wasn't something that in his flesh seemed like too much. So he thought it was cheap and worthless, and he gave it up. And he found no place to turn from that idea or to live any kind of different way. He couldn't reverse his moral purpose. So the next part reads, um, I think, to elevate the relevance of this in our lives, this concept. 
There's allusions here to Mount Sinai, which got blackened by fire. Remember, God's power came on it. The top of it got blackened. But that was God's interaction with humanity to show the Mosaic Covenant, to prove to all of the Hebrews that God had said and spoken the words through Moses. The very power of God that sometimes our eyes forget, but the Jews had to live on that memory even though they were generations past that happening. And we as Christians do the same with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're not there to see it anymore. Generations past the resurrection. Verse 18 then, For you've not come to the mountain that might be touched and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. Remember, God spoke from the mountain, and they're like, we can't handle this anymore, because they weren't holy. And that it just burned them, right? And they're like, Moses, you gotta, you got to be the mediator. For they could not endure, verse 20, what was commanded. As if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned and shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. I'm in the presence of God. I don't know where I stand. Because all I know is I'm not holy. So I, I have to approach God with that fear and trembling. But then listen to this. But you've come to Mount Zion. That's a different mountain than Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerate company of angels and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. Whoa, right? This is, they're just unpacking on us. You don't come to the law of Moses. You come to something far, far more powerful. We come before Jesus every single day we wake up in the morning. Lord, what do you want me to do today? What do you got in front of me today? We come to Jesus every time we go through our day and every time we go to bed, we come into the presence of God. We call him our father. We call him our master. Then we are walking around like servants of the living God. God, what do you want me to do right now? He rings the little bell. We're instantly there. I'm here, Lord. What do you want? And we're waiting for him. Maybe we wait 10, 15 years, but we're always waiting for the call of God. Verse 18 and 90, 19 remind them of the visceral, raw power that the Jews had seen in history. It was witnessed by all of them, Exodus 19. Verses 20 and 21 express a separation from God. We're not God and we're nowhere near the power of God um, and how small we are expressed by Moses in Exodus chapter 20. So these verses are just doing a Bible study. Verse 22 connects Jewish history with the heavenly version of it being followed by Jesus. Like, this is just the continuation of God. Sinai demanded justice for sin. Zion demands mercy for sinners. But they both have demands. They both call out for something to happen. Verse 23 connects all of this to the church, which we're sitting in right now. Doesn't look like much in the flesh, does it? but the power of the living God works through groups of believers that gather to read his word and study and fellowship. Boom. The church, it's as powerful as Sinai. That's serious business. That's earth-shaking kind of business. Jesus built it in Matthew 16, 18. We maintain it, Matthew 18, and we endure with it, Acts chapter 8, and we have peace because of it, Acts chapter 9. The church, it's a big deal. Just men 
made perfect or completed. There's an essential work happening in the church, and that is we become finished or perfected in our faith when we live within it and we exist within the church. That's powerful stuff. Here's the best part. No matter where you move on this planet, you can probably find other Christians to hang with. Right? You can go anywhere and hang out and find a church where they're studying the Word of God, worshiping in spirit and in truth, and praying and giving all of their supplications to the Lord God Almighty, and you'll find brothers and sisters. It's a big organization, loosely coupled. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. He stood between the people. We don't have to become before the power that they saw in Sinai. Because like they had Moses moving forward, we have Jesus moving forward. God manifested himself in a form that we could handle, that we could absorb, that we could understand. And it wasn't something that made us just shake to our knees. It's something that draws us close, and we should be running with our feet. Verse 24, better things than that of Abel. Again, he's contrasting Esau and Abel here, and he bookends this thought from all the way back in Hebrews 11, verse 4. Remember, he started the the Hall of Champions with Abel. Now he's coming all the way back around to Abel. All of Hebrew history is a shadow of what is to come. And from the writer, that's to say, we're about to start a 2,000-year era called the church age. Get ready for it. What happened on Sinai is just a shadow of what's going to happen next. And sure enough, over the last 2,000 years, the church has spread all over the planet. Church has done some cool things too. We, get, we don't just get after a pattern of heaven. We get to follow commands directly from heaven. Totally better than the old covenant. I know not a lot of you are tempted to go back to Judaism. But in the last 2,000 years, God has tamed entire nations. He's turned barbarians into artists. He has built hospitals, schools, universities. He has initiated scientific exploration, a fact that today's scientists like to cover up was built in the church, seeking truth in the natural world. He inspired explorers to go discover the rest of the planet, the depths of the oceans, and even get out to the moon. God has done amazing things through the power of the church. He's created governments that don't oppress people. They last for a little while before they become secularized. But there is an idea that we create, we, we, we appreciate the dignity of human life. And everything we see in the news that's just built to stir us up Don't forget the fact that there's been a trajectory of history where Christians have made the world a safer and a better place over 2,000 years. It is not as brutal as it was in the first century. It's been ups and downs, but overall, you can go to the market and not worry about what's going to happen to you most days. That's good. In that sense, you can go very few places on the earth where people don't know who Jesus Christ is. The name of Jesus has spread all over the earth. We're closing in and we're in the last years of having a Bible translated in every language. Now they're working on audio versions of the Bible in every language. Like we're, and then they're going to probably make audio-visual versions of the Bible in every language. But we're closing in on it. Like the word of the name of Jesus has spread all over the planet. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. I mean, we're getting to the conclusion of Hebrews here. Don't trifle with God's hand in history. Don't think that you're more important than all of human history. Like how arrogant we, th- we are as humans sometimes. Listen to God because he's spoken and it's finished. He's completed the path of faith in life. He's given you a hope to run a race for. Don't even consider the dead works of your old life. 
because that striving for peace, it never quite arrives in the secular world. But in the kingdom, it does. For they did not escape who refused him, who spoke on earth. He's talking about the, the Mosaic or the Sinai Jewish people now. They didn't escape. Much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he's promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but heaven. Now this, yet once more. I love how, like, in verse 27, he's commenting on the verse 26 verse that he just quoted. Like, this is expositional study, right? And he's pulling it apart piece by piece. When it says, yet now this, verse 27, yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, the things that which can't be shaken by any man, by, things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom which can't be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. Our God wants all of it. And the consuming fire, there's a reference to what happened on top of Mount Sinai. It's also then in the spiritual sense what happens to our heart. Nothing survives but the part God wants to survive. That's the chastening. He's going to purify us. We dabble with sin too much, it's gonna, he's going to burn it away, however he has to. We keep carrying weights that bog us down, he's going to take away our love and passion for those things that weigh us down. Suddenly you'll sit there and go, this just isn't fun anymore. I'd rather be doing other things, like music night, or going shooting with my guys in my fellowship, or what else has been going on? Like hiking trips. Silly things from the world's perspective, but things that give us a great peace. Here's a final reason for hope and endurance that we get in chapter 12. Have hope because Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to shake all of it. So you think Sinai was something? Wait until God himself returns. And he shakes the heavens and the earth. He's going to shake it all. This time, when he comes back, we have this idea, this hope that, that's there. And in verse 28, notice that it's not going into the future tense. It says, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. The thing that God's doing in our heart doesn't move. And I can testify to that over 30 years of being a believer. At some point, there are things that don't shake anymore. And you realize, oh, there's a firm foundation underneath all this. Do what you please. There's certain things I won't bend on. Right? There's certain things when it comes to my pursuit of peace and holiness, I'm not going to shake on those things. Do what you need to do. And that decision gets made way ahead of time, way before being a martyr, right? You say, I will go to my deathbed on this. And that is the name of Jesus Christ. I'll hold to it. I'll speak it. I'll preach it. I'll talk about it. So I just want to sum up all the little pieces in here. I counted that throughout the chapter, we get advice in this chapter. So verse 2 says, if you want to just circle these, look to Jesus. Number one, verse three says, consider him, because he endured it. Verse 12 says, strengthen your hands. Verse 13 says, make straight paths. Verse 14 says, pursue peace and holiness. Maybe that's two things. Verse 15 says, look carefully. Verse 25 says, don't refuse him. Verse 28 says, have grace. And verse 23, serve God. Amen. Lord, we just thank you for practical 
instructions. Lord, in our flesh, these seem may seem, Lord, like they don't have a lot of teeth to them, but in our spirit, we know they do. We know that if we can focus or fixate on you, Lord, these things can happen. Lord, we have hope in those things because you've promised those things. That's not an absent thing or a wistful thing. Our faith is a firm foundation and our hope is built on the assurance of faith. And we hope in those things we can't see. And we know that they're true because of the things that we have seen throughout history. We know they're true because of our own experiences, Lord. So I pray for the veteran believers in here to feel free and bold to share those lifetime experiences with each other. For our newbie believers in the room, Lord, I pray that they can hear those stories and those, those witnesses. They're surrounded by a throng of witnesses. Lord, help them to listen and to pay attention and consider what you've done in the lives of others. Lord, I pray for you to manifest yourself in our lives. Lord, give us great opportunities to share our faith, to share our love. Lord, when we call people into fellowship, may it be an invitation. And may we just call them because we love them and you've put a heart of love into our hearts. Lord, thank you for the chastening that you give us. And I don't know if there's folks here that are going through a chastening, Lord. I just pray that you help them to endure. Help them to do it because they know you're in charge and you love them. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that isn't walking with you, that really doesn't understand what I'm talking about in this chapter, Lord, may they not end the day without writing that. And Lord, I assume everyone in here is a believer, but Lord, if there's people just looking to seek to follow you, Lord, may they just feel bold to step forward and say, I, I want to pray with somebody. I got to get this right. Um, Lord, let's not live our lives wasting them. Not another minute, not another hour. Lord, may we seek you with our whole heart, mind, and soul and, and to be all in. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.